Hello. Bonjour. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. This episode, we're excited to be recording live from PGDIS in Paris. We're joined by our team members, Tony Gordon, Lynn Lynch, and Lauren Isley, who are all presenting or speaking here at the conference. So let's start with research that we as Cooper Surgical are presenting here at PGDIS. So Lauren, I'll start with you. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the research yourself and Colleen have taken part in around the use of PGTM for monogenic disease plus HLA compatibility? Um, you know, why are patients choosing this pathway? Yeah, thanks Molly. Um, so this was essentially looking at about four years worth of data for patients who were undergoing PGTM for a specific indication. Um, So in these cases, the families um, have already had a child that is affected with a monogenic disorder um, and they are attempting to have a subsequent child and to build their families um, to avoid the same genetic condition of their previous child but also to conceive a child who is what we call an HLA match for the child that they already have. And why that's important um, is because for many genetic conditions, one of the available treatment options is something called a stem cell transplant, which essentially is a treatment that is used to rebuild a patient's blood and immune system. And so in some cases, a stem cell transplant is is really the only viable treatment option for some of these genetic conditions. So families are trying to pursue this additional test called HLA compatibility to find embryos that are a close enough genetic match to their already existing child so that any subsequent child could potentially be a stem cell donor to their affected child. Um, so it's a way that families can, can sort of grow their family, um, reduce the risk of having a child with the same genetic condition, uh, and also conceive a child who could be a stem cell donor for uh, their already existing child. So there's quite a bit going on there, but um, this is something families have been doing for a long time now, and we thought it would be interesting to take a look back at that data to see what some of those outcomes and some of those results were from those embryo tests. Mm -hmm. So in the research that you have presented here, you were looking in particular at how using PGTA as well as PGTM um, would impact the number of embryos available for transfer. What did you see from, from your study? So it was really interesting because when you look at statistics uh, for these types of cases, um, we know that uh, approximately three out of four children or embryos would be unaffected if we're talking about an autosomal recessive condition or an X-linked recessive condition. Um, And then if you look at the chance that an embryo would be an HLA match, Uh, to the already existing child, you're looking at a one out of four chance. So if you do the math and calculate it out, uh, you would expect to see three out of 16 or 18.75% of embryos that would be unaffected and would be a match. And interestingly enough, when we crunch the numbers, 
the number shook out to almost exactly that 18.75% that we would expect to see when we talk about widely established genetics math. Uh, so it was really interesting to see that those numbers played out like you would expect them to. Uh, when we looked at the addition of PGTA, so screening embryos for the presence of aneuploidy, we found that the number of embryos that were deemed suitable for transfer, so unaffected, HLA match, and euploid, it reduced the number of embryos available for transfer by about half. Um, so this is really important in terms of counseling considerations and families really sort of understanding and having realistic expectations about what they could see in an IVF cycle. Okay, thank you very much. I, I had a, a question for you, Lauren, and it was kind of a bit of a throwaway comment in your talk, but it's kind of interesting because you have two perspectives in this area. You have a perspective from the PGT world, but also a perspective from the cord blood world. And it's interesting that, you know, we've seen a reduction in cases for PGT coming through uh, for HLA matching, but you kind of mentioned in a, in a fairly brief way that that's because we've got a lot better with cord blood banking. Yes, uh, I'm really glad you brought that up, Tony. Um, so uh, this may not be something all of our listeners are aware of, but one of Cooper Surgical's uh, companies is Cord Blood Registry. And Cord Blood Registry is a private cord blood bank uh, where families can opt to pursue um, preservation of their newborn's cord blood and cord tissue after the baby is born. And um, it, at Cord Blood Registry, we actually have programs available for families that are in this exact scenario uh, that have a, has a child who is in need of a stem cell donor for a stem cell transplant. And families can essentially be eligible for free banking through cord blood registry um, through these medical needs programs that we have. Uh, and I think this is something really important for people to know that if a family is pursuing PGT for a condition plus HLA compatibility, um, that they could be eligible to preserve their cord blood with cord blood registry uh, at no charge. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it really helps bring um, some of the products we have at Cooper Surgical very full circle. So thanks, Lauren. Um, Colleen, could we now talk to you a little bit about your work um, that you've presented at PGDIS on the analysis of incidental aneuploidy in PGT-SR trifectoderm biopsy samples and whether there's a link or not to interchromosomal effect? And actually, maybe it's best if we could explain to the audience what interchromosomal effect is. Uh, yeah, thanks, Holly. Um, so interchromosomal effect is basically a hypothesis that has been uh, discussed in the field for a long time. Um, and basically, the hypothesis is that if somebody has a structural rearrangement, um, because it causes difficulties um, in chromosome um, disjunction and segregation, that there could be a knock-on impact to the other chromosomes mm -hmm. um, and you could end up then having a higher rate of aneuploidy in chromosomes that aren't related to the translocation in the gametes uh, and then subsequently the embryo. Makes sense. 
And what did you find in your research? Mm -hmm. So we looked at um, six years worth of PGT SR data. So we were looking at a really large data set. Um, and what we were able to do uh, was to look at the antiploidy in these samples that was not related to the chromosome translocation mm -hmm. uh, and compare that to the antiploidy rate that we see in our PGTA patients. Uh, and what we could see was that not only did the presence of the chromosome rearrangement not increase this incidental aneuploidy, but actually the rates of aneuploidy in these other chromosomes was lower than the PGT patients. Okay, and you also looked at the incidence of mosaicism as well, and what did you find there? Yeah, we did. So we uh, separated out the samples where there was only a mosaic change, um, and we compared that to, again, the PGTA match data where there was just a mosaic change. What we saw here was that there was a higher percentage of embryos in the PGTSR data set where there was only mosaic changes within the samples. Okay. Um, initially, you know, that looked like maybe the presence of the structural rearrangement causes more mosaic changes, causes the generation of higher mosaicism if there are issues with chromosome segregation when the cells are dividing. Um, but there's two uh, sort of caveats to that. Uh, one being that this is a selected patient data set. Mm. So we have some clinics that report mosaicism, others that don't. Um, and additionally, um, when it is a sort of state-funded treatment cycle for PGTSR, we can't report mosaicism. So these, it could be argued, are slightly poor prognosis patients who are maybe on a second or third or subsequent cycle. Um, the other thing to say is that when people report rates of mosaicism, they're not talking about the percentage of all embryos that have a mosaic change. They're talking about the embryos that have a mosaic change and no other aneuploidy from like a, a meiotic source. So it could just be in this group that the increase that we're seeing in embryos with mosaic changes only um, is actually just a result in the reduction or the lower level of meiotic aneuploidy that we're seeing. Right, okay. Well, thank you for explaining that to us. And um, yeah, I guess, Tony, um, over to you now. So you chaired a session today on PGTA. Um, were there any interesting discussions during that session, any new data, anything on new on mosaicism? Um, yeah, can you give us a bit of a summary? Yeah, um, chairing a session is always kind of interesting because you never quite know what's going to be coming up and sometimes you do get some surprises in the data and some variability in the presentations. Um, the standout presentation for certain was Andrea Victor's. Uh, which was the latest update on the PGTIS registry of known mosaic transfers. This data is absolutely crucial to our understanding of mosaicism, whether you might consider transferring them, the implications of transferring them. So they've collected over 2,000 known mosaic transfers, uh, and they had a follow-up of 582 pregnancies. And those pregnancies had had a, either a mixture of NIPT or CVS or amniocentesis 
or postnatal follow-up. So it, they're a really interesting set. And amongst that set of cases, I think they only had around 27, 28 cases that had been mosaic transfer and then had persisted in the mosaicism into the prenatal testing or whatever. And then they had seven cases where actually babies had been born with mosaicism. And this is really useful because it kind of gives us a lot more reassurance that actually having a mosaic and a mosaic persisting and actually resulting in a mosaic baby is a pretty rare instance. Mm-hmm. I think there was a lot of conversation about this. It was probably one of the talks that had the most discussion. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot more data and we need to collect. We need to collect data per mosaicism level, complex, simple uh, segmental mosaicism and also even down to the chromosome level. So we'll be talking about this for many PGDISs to come. So it, it was pretty cool. Uh, and then there was a couple of other talks which were pretty interesting, but a little bit odd for us because they were talking about introducing things that we've done for some years. So they were talking about doing triploidy detection and they were talking about controlling uh, the noise in PGTA using um, specific databases. And that's something that we've been doing with PGTAI for the last uh, four years. So, you know, it wasn't quite as impactful to us, I think, as it might have been to the rest of the audience. And then finally, uh, there was a updating where um, French consortium of uh, national PGT labs are on their randomized control trial. Um, I think it's fair to say it's in progress. And that probably had the most discussion because randomized controlled trials are pretty rare in this space. And I think we're all a little bit concerned that these are labs that haven't done PGTA before. So I'll be interested to see how that actually pans out as a clinical trial. So it was, it was an, overall, I thought it was a, a pretty interesting session. And yeah, looking forward to the, uh, the rest of what we hear at PGTIS.